Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors. Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also by Liquidware, providing enterprise-class management solutions for physical, virtual, or cloud-based Windows desktops. And of course, also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, where you use group policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, give them to thank. And now for some news. Earlier this week, there was another Azure services outage that spared pretty much none of the many services hosted on Azure. People reported issues with Microsoft 365, Teams, Xbox Live, Exchange Online, Outlook.com, and SharePoint, plus more. The outage lasted several hours, and the root cause analysis states, Azure AD utilizes keys to support the use of OpenID and other identity standard protocols for cryptographic signing operations. As part of standard security hygiene, an automated system on a time-based schedule removes keys that are no longer in use. Over the last few weeks, a particular key was marked as retain for longer than normal to support a complex cross-cloud migration. This exposed a bug where their automation incorrectly ignored that retain state, leading it to remove that particular key. Metadata about the signing keys is published by Azure AD to a global location in line with internet identity standard protocols. And once the public metadata was changed at 7 p.m. UTC on March 15th, applications using these protocols with Azure AD began to pick up the new metadata and stopped trusting tokens signed with the key that was removed. At that point, end users were no longer able to access those applications. They go on to explain how sorry they are for the issues and how unacceptable it is and explain what they will do to try and ensure these kinds of incidents don't reoccur. Leapitcomputer.com reported that they have spoken to numerous Microsoft SharePoint administrators bombarded with client calls about missing files in their SharePoint folders. When the administrators looked into the issues, they found that the SharePoint folder structure was intact but all of the files were missing. Eventually, they found that the files had been deleted and were now located in SharePoint's cloud recycle bin, or in some cases, even in the local PC's recycle bin. The issue appears to affect files in Teams too, which makes sense since it leverages SharePoint. It appears this is caused by the Azure authentication issues, and the files could be manually restored or restored with a OneDrive sync according to Microsoft. So if you're noticing this issue now or potentially you've been noticing it last week and you haven't yet resolved it, you can either restore manually or hopefully a OneDrive sync will sort you out. On last week's episode of the podcast, I reported on a Windows 10 issue causing blue screens of death with an APC underscore index underscore mismatch error for some of those when trying to print to network printers 
who had installed the March 2021 cumulative update on Windows 10. Then, when I reported on that, the only known fix at the time was to uninstall the patch. But now, Microsoft has released an out-of-band non-security update to fix the issue. If you're running Windows 10 version 20.04 or 20H2, it's going to be KB51567. If you're on Windows 10 version 19.09, it's going to be 15.66. If you're on Windows 10 version 18.09 or Enterprise Education LTSC 2019, that's going to be 15.68. And if you're on Windows 10 version 18.03 Enterprise or Education, it's going to be 15.65. But as Microsoft giveth, Microsoft also taketh away. Because BleepyComputer.com are reporting that Microsoft are warning of further printing issues currently being experienced for those with the March updates installed. This is in addition to the blue screen of death issue. The printing issues highlighted by Microsoft include that elements of the document might print as solid black or color boxes or might be missing entirely, including barcodes, QR codes, and graphics elements such as logos. Table lines might be missing. Other alignment or formatting issues may also be present. And printing from some applications or to some printer types might result in a blank page or label. So pretty significant printing issues. And there's an extra twist in this tale as well because they did release another out-of-band patch, which was KB51649, to address some of the additional problems, but have since pulled that back. Leapitcomputer.com also reported that even with the out-of-band patches applied, some are reporting that they're continuing to experience the blue screen of death issues. So a really terrible month when it comes to printing on Windows 10 and patches in general. Hopefully this gets squared away sooner rather than later. In a very interesting development in the high severity exchange vulnerability story, Microsoft are said to be investigating whether a partner accidentally or purposely leaked a private exploit example to attackers. ZDNet reports that security vendors that are part of the Microsoft Active Protections Program were provided with concept code back in February, and just a week later, the active exploit started and appeared to be using some of the same code provided in that sample. That's not good news, is it? It'll be interesting to see where this goes, because I'm sure, at least from an organization standpoint, if this turns out to be like an antivirus vendor, I'm sure it wasn't planned to give that code to someone who may use it in a malicious way. So potentially maybe one of those antivirus or security vendors has been breached and it hasn't been reported yet. And that's how that code got leaked. It's pretty crazy times in IT security right now. In better news, a YouTube video demonstration of using the Microsoft Scanner tool to clean up any web shells left behind is available now. So I talked a little bit about the Scanner tool last week in that it's available and you should really use it even if you had patched. But this video will show you how to use that tool. And in even better news, Microsoft have also now provided a tool to help streamline the scanning and mitigation with a one-click tool that is now available. So. Maybe that one is preferable for use over the scanner tool that requires some extra effort. Patching frustration news. 
Due to issues discovered for those trying to update ESXi to the version 7 update 2, VMware has pulled this version for now. The issues are flagged in KB articles 83107 and 83063. One was showing a crypto64.efi error when trying to boot an upgraded ESXi host. And another was showing a cannot download VIB file error, or even in some cases, a 404 error in the VLCM update manager. So if you had updating to version seven update two on your to-do list, having seen that it was released, you're gonna have to readjust your timelines on that. It's been pulled. For Citrix customers, one to watch out for here is CTX306 437. They are warning that a subset of license files do not contain the 30-day grace period that's common. They warn that if you see a warning that connections will be denied when the license appears to have expired, you should go to your Citrix account, download the license file again, and reapply as the affected licenses have been updated to correct the issue. I'm sure for some organizations out there, they rely pretty heavily on that grace period when they're doing like routine maintenance. So best to not sit on this and make sure that you've got a correct license file with that grace period applied. For Citrix Cloud customers, it appears that EDT has been re-enabled after some resiliency and fixes have been included to avoid use in denial of service attacks that have been ongoing for several weeks. In a non-enterprise IT story that may have future implications for enterprise, PCGamer.com reported that Rockstar Games recently released a fix for their popular Grand Theft Auto Online game that improves loading times by about 70%. What is unique about this fix is that it was created and submitted by a gamer who goes by T0ST on GitHub. He discovered that part of the loading process was being handled with a single threaded process. In turn, the game's maker has implemented the fix and awarded the gamer with a $10,000 bug bounty, which is usually reserved for those who find vulnerabilities. Perhaps vendors who embrace open source may consider opening up their bug bounty programs for those who discover ways to significantly increase performance for their applications too. I think we'd all win. And certainly an increase of 70% on loading times is significant and definitely worthy of at least $10,000. So good on that gamer. And file this story under well duh. But if you listen to the podcast frequently, you may recall a few weeks ago, I covered the new range of NVIDIA graphics cards and mentioned how the RTX 3060 was going to come with a throttle to ensure it's not optimal for use in Ethereum cryptocurrency mining. This made a lot of sense because a lot of gamers had qualms with NVIDIA because bots and bots as a service were buying up all of their graphics cards, mainly for use in cryptocurrency mining so gamers were being kind of left in the dark so when they announced the new line of graphics cards they specifically had this graphics card that throttled use so performance would not be optimal for cryptocurrency mining well now it has been reported by the verge that miners have already managed to bypass the throttle 
How did they bypass it? Well, NVIDIA inadvertently released a beta driver version 470.05 that automatically unlocked performance, basically took the throttle off. NVIDIA say the driver has now been removed. No word in the article from The Verge on how or if they can force people off that beta driver version or stop them from sharing it or if that's even possible. Last year, I reported a story about a ransomware that was able to execute in safe mode. That was the first time that I had personally heard of such a thing. Well, the widely deployed Revel ransomware, or R-Evil, I'm not sure how they intend for it to be pronounced, but anyways, the widely deployed Revel ransomware has now added the ability to encrypt in Windows safe mode now too. They are leveraging a run once key named Asterisk AstraZeneca. Isn't that cute? BleepyComputer.com reports that oddly, when you boot into safe mode while it's encrypting, you get a black screen and can do very little. There's like features within the OS that are restricted or locked from you. Now, if I was to boot up my machine and it boots into safe mode and I can't do very much, my instinct would be to just power off the machine. Why keep it up? I mean, I can't do anything anyways. So this one seems a little kind of half-baked. I don't know how effective it's going to be. If it's in this state when it's trying to encrypt the files in safe mode, I'd imagine most people are going to turn it off before they have a chance to encrypt all the files. But maybe it's a signal of intent and they're going to improve that. So it's a little less obvious. And speaking of Revel, they are said to be behind an alleged ransomware attack on computer manufacturer Acer. It is claimed by The Verge that the ransom demanded is a lofty $50 million. The article speculates that the attack may have been through the Microsoft Exchange vulnerability. While Acer have yet to confirm any details or even directly confirm an attack at all, they did say they, quote, routinely monitor its IT systems and most cyber attacks are well defensed. Companies like us are constantly under attack and we have reported recent abnormal situations observed to the relevant law enforcement and data protection authorities in multiple countries. They go on to say, as this is an ongoing investigation and for the sake of security, we are unable to comment on details, end quote. So it does sound like something happened. Now, whether or not it is tied to the Microsoft Exchange vulnerability, since they're not disclosing details, I think that's just purely speculation. But I will say, I do know someone in Arizona who goes to a local college there, and it sounds like they had a ransomware attack that I haven't yet read about in the news. And timeline-wise, kind of matches up with the Microsoft Exchange vulnerability too. So I could see why they might draw some conclusions that it's that, but again, no information released to confirm or deny that that's how the attack was carried out. I'll keep this one short because I know I'm giving Martin some nightmares already, but U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or the CISA, has released a new tool to detect post-compromise malicious activity associated with the SolarWinds hackers in on-premises enterprise environments. So any good InfoSec team should be gathering these tools and the tools from Microsoft for the exchange vulnerabilities and running them in their environment. So 
If you're in InfoSec, get on it. At Ignite recently, Microsoft announced their RPA product, Power Automate, would be free for Windows 10 users. Well, it looks like Google will not be left in the cold as they just announced a partnership with Automation Anywhere. Automation Anywhere's Automation 360, plat 360 platform will be available on Google Cloud and both companies will mutually develop artificial intelligence and RPA powered services. ZDNet reports that Google will also integrate Automation Anywhere's RPA capabilities into multiple Google Cloud products, including Apogee and Apps Sheet. The companies will also co-develop industry-specific services geared towards supply chains, healthcare, telecommunications, retail, public sector, and financial services organizations. So these robotic process automation tools are obviously becoming more and more popular, and it's pretty cool. I've been enjoying getting to learn some of the products that are out there. And if you're in enterprise IT, I strongly encourage you to check them out yourself because undoubtedly this is going to make a big impact. On last week's episode, I had a tip from your Korean dad who's very popular on TikTok. His tip was to help those with vision impairment who use screen readers to read social media and basically how to tailor your hashtags so they could be read well by screen readers. Well, in that same wheelhouse, Google have released a live caption feature to Google Chrome that should work across all social media sites, video sites, and podcast platforms, plus more. This is a feature that has been on Android for a while now, but is now available to all via the web who use Chrome. Christian Riley shared an interesting article this week about how some of the large investment banks have saved over 1 billion euros in the last year from would-be travel expenses. Financial News London reported that Christian Suing, or Sewing, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that last name, but Christian is a Deutsche Bank chief executive, and he said recently that the bank has started to examine their real estate setup and will certainly not return to the same level of travel costs that they had prior to COVID. Deutsche Bank had the largest savings of all the banks pooled in that one over 1 billion euros of savings, with year-on-year -year travel costs slumping by 70% to just to just 76 million euros. Still seems like a lot. While Goldman Sachs market development costs, which includes travel, also dropped by 46% to 401 million in 2020. The report includes a retired senior banker's quotes who explained, I used to get picked up at 5 a.m. to hop on an early flight to somewhere in Europe, flying back at 5.30 p.m. and then getting back home at 8 p.m., usually just for a one-hour meeting, which could just as easily have been done over Zoom. He goes on to say, please let those days stay behind us. The report also cites one banker saying if a competitor returns to doing face-to-face -face meetings with clients, they will also need to return to traveling again. So, maybe the clients need to insist on remote meetings is what I'm getting from this. This report is pretty interesting, but also pretty infuriating. One of the features of the last year with everyone moving to work from home was that a bunch of old banking executives were the most eager to have their staff return to the office. At least that's what I've been reading in reports on different publications. 
and there appears to be some pressure due to some investment banks holding significant city real estate portfolios that could see a massive decline if work from home stays for good. If you happen to be a client of these banks and are listening, please insist on Zoom calls rather than in person because screw their portfolios, quality of life for workers, and protecting the environment against these needless long journeys for one hour meetings is more in everyone else is more in everyone's interest. And now a couple of weekly webinars. I'll keep these short, they're just reminders, but VMware will be holding a webinar across two days technically, the 31st of March and 1st of April, depending on your location. And they will be covering how to improve app performance in the cloud. So VMware have made some pretty interesting acquisitions over the last couple of years that are very focused on this space. So if you wanna see how to modernize your applications to maybe leverage the scale of the cloud, definitely check out this event. And I'll share a link for registration for that with this episode, which is episode 168. And you'll find that on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links, along with all articles that I've referenced for creating this episode. One other quick weekly webinar for all of my Microsoft MVP friends. The MVP Global Summit is about a week away. You should have received your email for registration and information related to the event. If you haven't yet, you should reach out to your lead if you don't want to miss out. And now some scripts, tricks, and tips. Another week, another tip from Guy Leach, who said that if you really do have to write an EXE or script that contains a clear text password, he says, please, please put in code to read it from an environment variable so that it doesn't have to be passed in clear text on the command line and thence be visible in task manager. It's a pretty good tip. I haven't really thought about that angle of it before. It's probably available in Process Explorer 2, I'd imagine. I typically avoid passing passwords in clear text. And I know that Eric from ZenApp Blog actually shared a pretty interesting PowerShell script that he created for masking or encrypting those passwords from passing them in PowerShell. So that could be worth checking out too. For a little bit of shameless self-promotion, I updated my recent blog post titled Life After App V, where I went into my efforts of trying to convert all of my App V1 packages to MSIX. Uh, In the blog post, I also talk about my work doing a proof of concept with Numescent Cloud Paging. And in the article, I was saying, well, App V is not going away for another few years. It's still a great product. I really like using AppVentex to deploy our AppV packages. It's just better than any other deployment tool that we have today. So it makes me lean more towards AppV than anything else. But that for new application packages, I want to use Numescent Cloud Paging because it's got such a high rate of success, particularly first-time success, that makes it very simple to use. And it's just more broadly applicable since so many apps work in it. Well, recently I looked into how to at least somewhat automate converting those AppV 5.1 packages to Numescent Cloud Paging. I still think that I'm not going to do it en masse. I'm not really rushing to convert those existing AppV 5.1 packages. If I'm packaging new applications, then I'll use Cloud Paging as a primary, but for existing packages, there's no rush to really convert them yet. Also, in my video demo that I've included in this blog post now, which I'll share with this episode, 
I'm partially automating it with PowerShell using the AppV PowerShell module. But what I haven't done yet, and which is possible to do, Numescent have their own CLI for their studio tool. So I'd like to fully automate it end to end. So just maybe even batch process all the applications similar to how I did with AppV 5.1 to MSIX. So stay tuned for that. It's not a high priority for me to do because I'm not rushing to convert my apps from AppV 5.1 yet, but it's something I hope to get to. Also, I recently did a guest blog post on some of my predictions for 2021 and beyond. So I'll share that with this episode too. Adam Fowler has an old blog post, but it's still relevant on how to move a Microsoft account. It's handy for those at Office 365 and other Azure services. So if that's you, check that out. Yet though, at goeuc.com shared a blog post about basic website performance testing using Selenium. Selenium is popular with web developers for doing unit testing. This could be also useful for those in enterprise IT for benchmark testing. Yetho has shared some of his test results for performance and how to, if you'd like to, try doing this yourself for some of your web applications for performance testing. I think this performance testing and benchmark testing is going to be a more common place thing within enterprise IT, so it's worth knowing. Shout out to the amazing Thorsten once again. This week for sharing a blog post by Langa.com, which shares free templates to automate your backups using Robocopy. I've had a love affair with Robocopy now for many years for replicating PVS V-Discs and I was also using it at a bank where they had file shares across many different geographical locations so I'd have to copy packages pretty much around the world and I was relying on Robocopy for that. So Robocopy, still an awesome tool. If you have never used it before, you should check it out. And if you don't follow Thorsten on Twitter, you should follow him on Twitter because he's full of great tips. And finally, Casper Hansen has updated his awesome blog post for deploying Microsoft's new Edge in Citrix environments. This is a lengthy, comprehensive blog post with pretty much everything you need to know. So if you're embarking on deploying Edge in your Citrix environment, check this out. Well, that's it for another episode of the podcast. If you wouldn't mind, if you have the time, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast, if you enjoy it each week on your podcast platform of choice. And or if you could go to the YouTube channel, which I link every week on 5bytespodcast.com, you'll find it in the YouTube column. And like and subscribe, that could help me out too. Thank you all so much for listening.